Hi everyone, welcome back to the Self Connection Podcast. It's been several months since the last interview due to some major challenges in my personal life. The main one being the passing of my mother in January. She had been struggling with cancer for the past six months. I've needed to take some time away and stop all activities that I could to focus on being there for my mother and my family. I'm an extremely private person but I feel providing some context is important to continuing this podcast and also providing some background to this interview with Heather Valley. Heather Valley is a musician who lives in Hamilton, Ontario, and is originally from a small town in Northern Ontario. Her music can be described as dream folk or Americana Noir. She does a much better job than I ever could of explaining the genre in our conversation. But what I will say is her music has had a pretty powerful impact on my life. I first met Heather back in July of 2019 at a time when I had first learned about my mother's cancer. I had experienced a few other significant losses in my life that I won't share about publicly, but that were very difficult for me. My wife and I were in the process of renovating an old Victorian house that we just purchased in Paris, Ontario, around the time that I had learned of my mother's diagnosis. A friend recommended that I check out Paris Surf, which is a small quaint pizza shop that has the greatest collection of chandeliers and random decorations, including snowshoes, antique bikes, and a bison head. Heather happened to be performing that there that day. I was struck by her performance, how much heart and soul came through, her obvious talent, and the labor that went into her craft. It was clear to me that Heather's music was going places. Her debut album, Desert Message, was released independently on November 22nd, 2019, to great critical reception and earning a coveted five-star review and number one album spot on Alt Country for 2019. It was included on numerous 2019 best of lists and has been reviewed, covered, and playlisted by the Philadelphia Inquirer, Hamilton Spectator, View Magazine, Steel City M Music, to name a few. She's performed at various musical festivals and has a growing following. I feel fortunate to have met Heather at this point in her career and to see her play at these small intimate shows as I'm sure she'll grow to have many, many fans and play in bigger and bigger venues. In this interview, we talk about Heather's journey over the past few years, her transition from being a litigation lawyer to a musician, the toxic relationship that played a role in her leaving that career, and ultimately her ongoing journey of recovery from a complete breakdown and learning to love herself. In my work, I integrate breath and movement as a way of grounding and of creating a positive self-connection. Music is an essential ingredient to this process, as nothing expresses emotion and the various rhythms of life, like chaos, joy, stillness, order, flow, better than music. I've experienced many times that music can revive the soul when things in life seem so overwhelmingly despairing and when people can be so disappointing. Heather's music has reminded me of the power of music, particularly live performances, that while pain and suffering is a reality of living, we can each transform the darkness into something beautiful, something true, whether that be a song or the way we live or the attitudes and energy that we bring to a moment. Listening to Heather's music has helped remind, inspire, and ground my connection to a powerful force within me. I truly believe that when we each shine our light into the world, it inspires others to see their own light, and that is what Heather's music has helped me do. In this interview, I think you'll find Heather to be an intelligent, wise, strong, and soulful person who has worked to develop herself through courage, self-responsibility, and a willingness to be vulnerable. My wife and I had the pleasure of seeing Heather perform at the Arlington Hotel in Paris, Ontario just last month, and given everything that's gone on, it was a rare date night that we both had a chance to enjoy and connect through. At the end of the show, I talked to Heather and told her about the positive impact and inspiration I drew from her music over the past six months and asked if she'd be willing to come on the podcast and share her own story. Before our interview begins, I'm going to share a small sample from a song called Young Range from her new album, Desert Message, which is one of my favorite songs on the album. Pink 
In terms of an introduction, what do you think are some kind of good pieces of your music or introducing an audience to you that they should know about? Um, I think it's helpful to situate the genre for people. Mm -hmm. so if you were to say that this is roots music and it's been called anywhere between dream folk and Americana noir, I think that that would help set the stage a little bit. Okay. okay. Um, Can you help me understand what that what that means. So dream folk and Americana noir. I've never heard of those. Okay. So dream folk is a genre distinction. It's a subgenre within folk that okay. has um, been spoken about publicly. Another Canadian artist who's getting really well known, who's in that genre is Jennifer Castle. Um, okay. And she's, in, she's interconnected between the Toronto scene and then lived on Lake Erie for quite a while. Okay. Um, she's also currently toured with Kurt Vile, so she's doing pretty well. Okay. What that is, is it seems almost like a dreamy um, 70s era return to folk. Mm. So that's what people refer to. And then sometimes the topics of those songs are almost like magical realism, which okay. I really quite love. Yeah. There's an element of that, but then because of the nature of the story, it's been described, and I haven't heard this used elsewhere, but it's been described as Americana Noir or Southern Country Gothic, which is like, it's almost as though you were to import the context of a mystery story into folk. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, that there's a kind of darkness to your music that I really appreciate and enjoy. And you know, when I met you at that last show, I explained to you that my mom had passed away recently and sort of in that process of her dying, your music was actually really helpful because emotionally, I think it resonates at that level. Um, for me, that felt very authentic and very true to the experience of loss, whatever that kind of loss is. So that was kind of one of the things that I wanted to explore with you in terms of um, whether death, whether it's um, actual death or personality transformation where parts of you have to die off so that you can enter into a different place in your life. If that is kind of relevant in some of the things that are emotionally resonating for you as you've written these songs and, um, and as you perform. So that's, that's kind of my, um, sort of connection to your music. Um, and so I initially met you at Paris surf, um, and you performed there, I think, sometime in July of 2019. And I was there. We had just started to move into this house in Paris. And I was there doing whatever kind of odd jobs around the house. And my friend recommended that I go there and grab some pizza and have a beer. And you were performing there. And I was just eating my food. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, there's something about this performance that's not like a typical, you know, someone playing in, in a restaurant, that kind of thing. And it was the emotional authenticity and i think you know you have a beautiful voice and, and you're very talented and i think layered in that is um something about your personal transformation which is why i wanted to connect with you and have this conversation to explore that because this podcast is a, it's a i'm a psychotherapist and so my sort of exploration and the theme of the podcast is self-connection and how people kind of move through situations in their life painful suffering and sort of come out the other side of that and um, survive that and actually become something uh, even greater. So I'm wondering if that is maybe a transition to, for you to share a little bit about your own experiences and the relationship you have with music and how that's been a force in your life. Um, could you share a little bit about your story? 
Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the items that you just um, spoke to in that sort of introduction to how we met and to how my performance came across for you really resonate with me. Um, and I think that speaks even further to this feeling of authenticity that we can find with each other through music, mm -hmm. shared experience, right? Yeah. Because so much of this is a touchstone for me, um, is transformed into that art form, and then it is getting picked up by other people. And that was ultimately what my goal was in going into music to begin with. But I'll step back a couple of steps for your audience. So I grew up in Northern Ontario and I spent my youth essentially uh, unsupervised outside in the forest. Um, nice. I, it was an idyllic childhood in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, certainly there were challenges as well, but I found myself discovering who I was in this strange communion with the nature that was around me. It was very wild. Um, it was not the way that we might envision it in Southern Ontario, especially at that time. I was essentially on unmarked trails and on um, hydro pipelines and on snowmobile trails and cross-country ski trails. So I spent a lot of time getting to know that type of a landscape. And my family wasn't a strongly musical family, so I didn't have a frame of reference for um, lyricism for the voyage that people can go on through music. It just wasn't really part of my life. And I found myself slowly attracted to those things through my own means, you know, as I was discovering myself. But I never would have imagined myself in a city context or in a musical context as a performer because I didn't have that method of expression at the time. I didn't learn an instrument or anything like this. Mm -hmm. So I spent my time essentially training to become a cross-country skier. And my goal was to go to the Olympics at that time. And I did fairly well. Um, by the time I quit, I was ranked 13th in Canada nationally. Wow. Okay. But I was looking at, you know, what will the future hold? And that was just below the level of moving on to become part of the national team or the national developmental team. Mm -hmm. And I to experience life in a different way. Um, the best way that I can describe cross country ski training for anyone who's not familiar is it's very similar to swim training. So it takes over your entire life. Right. But the one piece that um, continued through as a thread was the personal relationship I developed with nature, which also comes up in the songs. Uh, okay. So when I went away to school, I actually began studying psychology and then shifted into English because um, words meant so much to me. Mm. I had this little dream of being a writer. As a child, I would write poetry and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. But I had a lot of forces in my life that strongly discouraged me from following the path of an artist because it is a difficult life. Mm -hmm. So because of those forces, which I allowed to have a lot more control over my own path, I ended up um, shifting into cultural anthropology. I also felt at that time like I didn't have a story worth telling yet. A lot of people will talk about, you know, this, um, this idea of being an old soul and yeah. sort of having an understanding of people's motivations and like bigger picture things in life. Mm -hmm. I was the complete opposite to that. <laughs> I was a very young and naive soul. I believed that what people said they meant because that's how I was. That was my frame of reference. Right, right. So because of it, I couldn't put myself in other people's shoes well enough to be able to write. So I thought, okay, I'll shift into a context where I can learn other people's stories and tell their stories from an anthropological standpoint. So I did that. And then um, I just needed, you know, I wasn't really sure what that would turn into in terms of a career. And I decided at the last minute that I would write the LSAT while I was in the middle of doing my master's in cultural anthropology. And I dedicated a certain amount of time to it and it went well. 
And then suddenly I threw myself into law school really without having any idea of what I was getting into. Okay. But the issue with that is law school is extremely expensive at this point and I was independently funding it. So I committed myself to a career path that I thought was going to be ideal for me because I thought it would be challenging. It would keep my interest. I believed justice at that point. And I'll be completely honest with you. I felt like I needed to prove myself. I was not comfortable with who I was as a person yet. Mm -hmm. That was why I allowed myself to get taken off of the things that naturally attracted me, like writing. And I wanted to prove that I could be a person in this world of men or world of, of humans, you know, socially. So, so was that transition between cultural anthropology into law? That was quite a sharp left turn then. Um, well, you know, I, I think I lied to myself. I thought that I would be able to focus my legal studies on immigration law, which was relevant to the cultural anthropology okay. approach that I took. Okay. But I ended up, without realizing it, committing myself to having to work for a long period of time to be able to pay down that debt. It was a tremendous amount of debt just from law school. I had $100,000 that I had to pay back. Yeah, wow. You know? Mm -hmm. and, um, what ultimately happened was um, I began practicing law at a regional law firm that was very well respected with an extremely good mentor. But um, the further you start to walk down that path, the more commitments that you make, in relation to that path. So and what kind of law were you practicing at this point? Uh, it was civil litigation. And initially I was practicing a 50% um, commercial litigation practice and then 50% was family law. Okay. Yeah. But I naturally am, you know, inclined to connect with people on an emotional level. So I started doing more and more family law and by the end that was my specialization. Okay. So, you know, you commit so much time, right? Like within the context of the schooling, within the context of all of the learning, it was an all-encompassing thing. I didn't have the ability to take time to do anything that was sort of self-care. I was always taking care of other people. And then it gets really hard to imagine sacrificing all of that to take a different path, especially because, you know, it's really odd for people who knew me over previous periods of my life, because they'll say that I always seemed confident, but I was putting on a costume. Mm -hmm. You know, I played Heather, the cross country skier, and I understood how to interact in that role. I played Heather, the lawyer. I understood how to interact in that role, mm -hmm. but I really didn't know who I was. Right. And because of that, and because I didn't feel like law was a fit, but I still, I felt trapped in it, I started looking for validation in the wrong places. And then that's what leads us to the very dislocating experience that essentially caused me um, to leave that whole life. Mm. And, you know, it was a romance. Mm -hmm. that, that was the hugest factor. I was living in this um, regional small town outside of Hamilton. I had um, purchased a house because at the time a house was cheaper than, than rent. Right. But then I had all of those obligations, which you know all about, you know, renovating an old Victorian house or an old Edwardian. Yeah. So I was doing that by myself. I was managing a practice. I was working um, 70 hour weeks, most weeks. I was also sitting on boards in my community and I was feeling completely as though I wasn't understood by the people around me. And I found a person or he found me really. Um, occasionally I had time to record little covers of songs because I picked up a guitar over the years and slowly taught myself how to play. Um, partly because I wanted to feel closer to the songs I loved and learn them, you know? Mm. So I had put some videos up and he found one of them and he contacted me through YouTube and said that it had connected with him. And then we struck up a friendship and that turned into a romance. And then we met for a week in upstate New York at a cabin. And I thought that I had fallen in love with this person. He said all the right things. 
And that's not to say that it sounded like a fairy tale. They were all the right things for me. Mm -hmm. I had felt like I had experienced loss before in my life. I had felt like I was broken enough and I knew what sacrifice was. And so he, I think, picked up on those things. And I also think that a lot of times people will tell you what you want to hear, but they also believe it in the moment. Right. So we were making plans to be together after that week. And then all manner of things went wrong. He had to go back down to Florida. He was from the States. I was living just outside of Hamilton, as I said. Mm -hmm. um, every effort that we made to be with each other, kept getting thwarted by things. And then he um, admitted to me that he was dealing with challenges with alcohol and with his own mental health mm -hmm. and was very sympathetic to those things. Of course, that wasn't the full story. I didn't learn what the full story was until much later. I don't know how much of what he told me was true, which is mm -hmm. the whole story behind my song, Nightmare Akana. Um, but we ended up having what was to me, I thought the love of my life and romance that just kept going wrong over and over again. And this persisted for far too long. He was ultimately arrested in front of me at the border. And then even after that, after serving nine months in jail, came back into my life. And that was the beginning of the end for me. You know, I thought for a long time that I had been, um, that I had interacted with essentially a con man who was also a womanizer mm -hmm. and how I was able to locate those things. But I never wanted to admit that this had happened because professionally I was supposed to be this strong figure who was capable of helping people deal with mm -hmm. their own relationship breakdowns. Right. And personally mine was, you know, a nightmare. So um, the long story short end of it is that in 2017, everything went wrong. I saw him again for a week in Florida. He proposed to me. I came back home, and the day after I returned home, my mentor, who was like a father to me, passed away suddenly of a heart attack. Oh, my God, yeah. Right. It's a so lot. That meant that there were a lot of things happening at work that I had to try to help to manage. Um, no one was expecting this to happen. And um, in the midst of all of this, this person cheated on me. That had a hard line for me. So I tried to end it. I tried to carry on with my life. But, you know, often when something like that happens in a relationship, you have to make moves to end things when you don't even want it to be real. So it feels like you're breaking your own heart and yeah. that had broken your heart as well. And the biggest trouble is that he wouldn't leave me alone. He would make new accounts and tell me how I was the love of his life and his soulmate over and over again. Mm -hmm. And in the next several months of my life, I just tried to remain strong on the outside, playing that role of the lawyer, but mm -hmm. my head began to plummet. I didn't understand until after all of this, all of the physical impacts that anxiety mm -hmm. can cause. Right. And ultimately, I went for a vacation I went down to Nashville and I saw Gillian Welch perform at the Ryman Auditorium. And I thought that that would help to heal me. I thought I needed art in my life. Mm -hmm. I never imagined myself actually creating it at that point, you know? But really what it did was it made me feel like I was missing out on the world that I should be a part of. Mm -hmm. I came back to Canada. I tried to go into work on the Monday and I sat down at my desk at seven in the morning at that point, I had been given an office. It was a corner office. It had a skylight. It was supposed to be the height of professional success. Yeah, it's what every, everyone chases after, that corner office. Exactly. You know, I was, I felt as though professionally I was very respected in the community. I had been doing very well at work in spite of everything that very few people knew I was dealing with personally. And I was sitting in that chair and I lost time. I suddenly came to when my alarm went off on my computer telling me that it was supposed to be in court at 10 o'clock and it was 9.45. Oh, wow. Couldn't understand what had just happened with the last two and a bit hours. So I tried to get up and walk to court and I felt as though I was walking underwater. 
my brain was not firing in the way that I was used to. Yeah. I had to rehearse what I was going to say before going up to the judge. And luckily it was just a very minor attendance just to update the court on what was going on with the case. So I did that. I walked back to the office and then I just walked out of the office. You know, I, that was really the last day that I went to work intending to work. I made an appointment with my doctor. I went in a couple of days later to speak with her and she took me off of work indefinitely and I've never gone back. And that was 2017. Yeah, that was August 2017. So rewinding back to the romance, I'm wondering what, was it that was being validated or what was being connected to that was within you um, that resonated deeply that hooked you into that relationship? Like what, what was that vulnerability um, that maybe you weren't aware of at the time, but with, with some time and some hindsight, I imagine that you have some insights about that. Would you be comfortable to share that? Yeah, I think what it was is the person that most people knew was the lawyer version of me. And um, a lot, in terms of law, a lot is knowledge, but a lot is also uh, appearance and strategy. So when you're a professional, you feel a very strong pressure to represent yourself in the way that your client expects to see you. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, certainly there's a part of me that is that person. You know, and I think that's the case for all of us who work in public facing roles. But the whole me, who was that person with vulnerabilities and who had dreams that were perhaps outside of the world of the lawyer as well, that person didn't feel like they had ever really been seen by someone. Mm. And this man who I became involved with did everything that he could to make it seem like he understood that person and wanted to be with that person. Right. And, you know, since we had connected through music, a very large part of the development of that relationship was really and oddly him um, as a person who grew up in the South, educating me about Americana music and introducing me to things that I hadn't known already. We both came together through our independent Um, appreciation of Jason Molina's music, who is my biggest influence in my art now. But beyond that, I hadn't necessarily explored um, the rich heritage of Americana. Mm -hmm. So he'd send me these songs, and then they would become touchstones to our conversations with each other. And it was almost as though the history of this incredible music was interwoven in this relationship. Okay, that's fascinating. Yeah. Since so much of that music is on themes of romance and loss and just very romantic kind of visions of the past and of the present, I almost began to feel as though they were part of the character of the relationship as well. Mm -hmm. And I fell completely in love with that idea. Right. I also honestly wanted to be saved from that life because Mm -hmm. I knew it wasn't fully me. And that was something that he continuously offered to me, you know, in making plans for a future together. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think seeing seeing the artist within you, and I think that the artist within you also connects back to this, the theme of your earlier life that you were talking about, of being connected to nature, of, of being connected to some, that powerful force that is beyond words, but really connects to our feeling level, our emotional our capacity to connect at that level. And um, it sounds like the the awareness or the connection to that deep level where you're tapping into something that's maybe at a soul level or at a deep level that I would call the self that that was used in um, in a way that was part of what you weren't aware of yet, you know, within yourself. And um, it sounds like taken advantage of, but also sort of breaching an opportunity to move into a more authentic phase of your life. Right. Um, I think in my heart of hearts, I had always wanted law to be a stopover, Mm -hmm. at least in the context that I was in there, you know, 
I hadn't imagined myself as like the Perry Mason, you know, courtroom lawyer. Right. Um, something that was required for me to be able to go on and continue my studies or to, for a while, I wanted to go to the UN and to work in one of the tribunals. Um, but then I became completely um, overtaken with this idea of this romance. And I had never really experienced that before. And it suddenly seemed real and everything else didn't matter, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, when you talk about the recognition of the self, I thought I was beginning to learn who that was in myself through his gaze. And that was why the validation was so important. Right. Yeah. 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 And I think that's the theme of every romance movie that drives me nuts because it, it sort of conditions us to look for it outside of ourselves. Right. That, that moment, that like powerful moment. And, you know, I've, I've experienced it in myself, but it's always, it's like a, it's like an illusion. It's a ghost. And, um, but when you go through that heartache, you wake up in the contrast of that experience to realizing what's more you, what's more, I think, in the, in the roots of yourself. So it's, a, I think, a necessary step. Right. It's, it feels like having been forged through fire. Mm, um, nice. Yeah. Um, I, and the funny thing is, at the time, I thought that I already knew who I was. So it's all in retrospect that I'm realizing that I was so, um, I was in parts, you know? I had to play this role in one context and then I had to play another role in another context. And really going all the way back through my life, I was always seeking out approval in some way. I mm. mean, that's essentially what our education system is set up to, yeah. to cater to and to expect from people as well, you know? So because of that, I had never actually fallen in love with who I was. I didn't even know who that person was. Mm -hmm. It was only in the process of coming out of essentially a complete fracturing of who I was. I lost the ability to read for about a month. I couldn't process things. I was so exhausted, you know? I, in the lead up to me finally leaving my job, I don't think I slept more than three hours a night for probably three years. Wow. And part of it was trauma related because what ended up happening with this person is that he would manufacture these um, 11th hour crises mm. and then come to me looking for a solution. And so it was just this roller coaster, which became almost like a conflict habituated experience of love. And you begin mm. to crave you begin to crave those extremes because you yeah. feel so much deeper, you know? Yeah. It was partly that. It was partly how stressful the job was. Um, and I became hyper attuned to vibration. So I couldn't sleep anytime a vehicle would drive by my house. It would wake me up. You know? That's one of those things like associated yeah. with anxiety that surprised me. Yeah. So I was in a place where I really needed to start to recover. But it was such an acute and sudden breakdown that it really took me about six months before the reality of everything hit me mm. and I began to actually grieve and I began to feel things again because when you're in survival mode you maybe don't you only focus on what's absolutely necessary yeah so you know that brings us into 2018 and I spent a great deal of time in that year um, honestly really depressed um, it was really difficult for me to get out and see people because I just felt like I had tried so hard for my entire life and this was the end result of it, you know? Yeah. Can I ask in terms of, um, and it, it might be helpful for people listening that are in a toxic relationship in an abusive relationship to understand how, how did you create that boundary that uh, then allowed you to go through this process of grieving and of healing, which I see depressive phases as that. It's it's really an important part of letting go of something, letting go of aspects of yourself that no longer fit. Um, could you speak to that? 
Yeah, I wish that I could say that it was something within me, but the story is actually more sordid. Um, so I mentioned that when I tried to cut things off because my last boundary had been crossed, mm -hmm. the first year that we were together where these constant issues came up, in reality, which I later learned, he was lying to me and actually starting relationships with other people because we were long distance. Mm -hmm. So then he would disappear and claim that he had gone on a bender to get sympathy and then come back into my life and disrupt everything again. So um, the last boundary was if we're going to try this again, if there is ever, you know, any cheating, then I have to leave because I knew that it would destroy me because I really loved him. I thought that I did. Right. Mm -hmm. And that happened in the context of the fallout of my mentor passing away. And I just, it was too much. So I had to let it go. But then I felt like I was breaking my own heart and it would have been uh, hard enough to deal with just that being the case, but he wouldn't stop contacting me. Um, and anytime I would try to block his accounts, he would continue creating new accounts. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a very odd experience of emotional abuse because um, at no time can I recall him ever calling me a name or um, saying something negative about me necessarily. It was instead the constant deception. Mm. And that deception put me in a headspace where I could never trust anything that he said. And then I began to question everything. And as a litigation lawyer, I'm already attuned to that. So it became impossible for me to trust anything anyone said. But in reality, and I think this is something a lot of people in abusive relationships experience, I genuinely believed, even though I didn't want to admit it to myself, that this was the best that love could ever be. Mm -hmm. That it hurt. Yeah. And that it could feel as good as it hurt, you know, on the other side. And I didn't want this to be real. So as much as I would block him, I almost wanted to continue to hear from him. And yeah. the thing that stopped it all was because the universe is a great author, literally the night that I saw Gillian Welch perform in Nashville, which was supposed to be like a soul renewing thing, he got arrested for the second time over the time that I knew him. And he ended up in jail. So in that period of time where I was going through that recovery phase, he didn't have the means to contact me anymore. And I was able to put it in the past and to write these songs and to begin to heal. Um, some people think that I quit law to become a lawyer, and I really didn't. I quit law because I couldn't do it anymore because I had a breakdown. And in the process of beginning to try to heal, I turned to my guitar um, and then began finishing songs, going to open mic, starting to perform and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. He did continue to contact me. He wrote me letters from jail until I moved. I had my mail forwarded and I continued to receive the letters in the new place that I lived in. Um, he went so far as to say that he would wake himself up by calling my name in the middle of the night in these letters. He was essentially doing everything he could to try to get me to wait for him until right. he got out and to remain invested. And a part of me wanted it to be real, you yeah. know? Yeah. So the letter stopped when my roommate, who had very good sense, wrote on one of them, she's moved, no forwarding address, and sent it back. And it somehow made it across the border to the correctional facility he was in. Mm. And then I actually had about a year or so of peace. And I started to, um, I started to focus as much as I possibly could on my music career, but I was still very broken. I was in therapy with a psychotherapist who actually helped me a lot. Um, and I tried to be as productive as I could. And that was the period of time that this record was recorded over. So I spent a lot of time in the studio and creating art and working on my skill set. And then he reappeared. Um, he began calling me from jail when he was placed in a different facility. He, and it was very, very bizarre to be holding my phone and suddenly have a call come up that said on the caller ID inmate call. Mm. I never answered, but he called me every day 
for weeks over the course of Christmas and into January of 2019. Then he got out of jail in late January and I began getting text messages. When I finally blocked him from the text messages, he started, um, he actually discovered my music page. Um, he had like, I wasn't creating music at the time that we were together. So he somehow found it, began messaging me through it, even though I had blocked him on Facebook. I did not respond to him for over two years. It actually took until June of last year when a friend of mine was, um, was murdered actually for me to get to a point where I was weak enough to finally respond. And over that whole period of time, even though I didn't talk to him for two years, it began to um, really confuse me. I would ask myself, you know, how can this not be real love mm -hmm. if this person has tried this hard for this long? Right. The other half of me said, this is a game and he's a narcissist and all that he wants is to know that I want him and then he'll leave. And that's actually what happened. Um, I finally reached out. He asked me if I would go down south to meet him. I told him I was still very, very hurt from the past and very upset about it. And he told me, you know, that was two years ago. You know, you got to get over it. And then the next day he disappeared again. And then I discovered that um, he had actually in the midst of all of this length of time of contacting me since he was out of jail, he had reconnected with one of the people he cheated on me with. Mm -hmm. And this was the most difficult one of all of them because it was over a period of time he had moved up to Buffalo. And this is the story that I tell in the song Lovejoy. Um, that was supposed to be our chance because he would be there and able to work and we'd be able to see each other on the weekends. But time and time again, at the last minute, he wouldn't be able to make his rent. So I was paying his rent, paying all of my expenses. Oh, my God. Yeah. Dealing with all that debt. And when I could no longer go down every weekend because of how expensive it was, he found a girl on a dating app who looked like me and had the same name as me, was also Canadian. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And um, ended up cheating on me with her. And she's the girl that he's now married to. So he still has this Heather from Canada. And I strongly suspect that many of the people in his life are not aware that we are different people. Wow. So, I mean, given that context, yeah. Um, how the, I don't think that I can necessarily give your audience who are in abusive relationships advice because for me, um, after he got what he wanted, which was to hurt me as much as he could, he stopped contacting me and immediately proposed to her and they're now married. So what I hope though, is that they can look at this and see that when somebody has betrayed your trust, that is probably the most important detail that they could ever tell you about themselves. Mm -hmm. And, um, in my personal experience, in my experience as a family law lawyer, and from my interactions with many friends over many years, the people who are able to survive cheating and have anything approaching a healthy relationship just don't exist. Right. You will always wonder, you will always um, feel as though you are being held back from becoming the full person that you are because you can never really move past that hurt when you see it in the person that you're with every day. Mm -hmm. So I really do think it's important as much as it hurts in the moment to do what you can to get that distance. Not everyone will do what he did. Yeah. In many cases, you'll be able to create that distance for yourself as much as I tried to, you know, but, um, now being on the other side of all of it, like the reason I told the whole story is that often people think, okay, well, you came through this hard time. You used music as therapy to help you process things. You wrote these songs, you released this album, things are better now. Mm -hmm. The reality is um, it's partially true, but often these ghosts from our past will rear their heads. Right. 
for me, the end of the story really wasn't until last summer. And that was probably the most challenging point of all, because I had to let go of every illusion that was associated mm -hmm. with what I thought that was, what he was, whether there was like a grander purpose in all of this. Right. Um, and actually get to the point where I was at such a complete rock bottom that no consequence would have mattered and then learn to love myself from that point forward. Mm -hmm. It's like a complete emptying or a complete washing away of any kind of facade or illusion. Um, I guess some of the things that you're talking about make me think of a metaphor that I use a lot in, in my practice, which is the imagery of a tree. And it's this idea that um, I worked with a young boy, 16 years old, and he was so lost in with with the wrong crowd and with doing drugs and with fighting with his family and uh, he started to map out the different roles he played in his life and he was on the sports team and he was with these friends and doing drugs over here and you know he had a, a younger sibling who we took care of and he said you know how can I be myself when people expect me to be all these different things across these different roles so I had this idea to map it out as a tree and that each of these channels of different major branches would be different roles and we talked about what if these are your roles which many people wear many different hats what are the roots of you what are the things that keep you grounded and his his parents uh, were in the session and they shared they said you know he's a he's a loving person he's very loyal he's empathic um he's strong he wants to do well he has a good sense of mor morals and we put these things down at the level of his roots and um, it really impacted him to to be rooted and to see that to express yourself from that place is the most important thing not necessarily feeding into the expectations of these different roles and i think it he needed to come to this point of complete failure across multiple roles and a letting go of that which is the expectations and the hooks that he was being invited to play with these various groups of people um, that he could feel okay with moving in a direction of being himself. And, um, and I think, you know, as you talk about nature and, you know, as, and, and I appreciate the, the humility that you have in saying you're still on this journey. It's not like you've reached this end point and everything is fine. And I think that is the case with trauma that, you know, we, we go through cycles of it of of grief of loss of depression and then you know gaining a different kind of strength or a different kind of insight where we're folding on top of our experience new learnings and new abilities and new perspectives and new strength but that wound it never just disappears the scars there um but it it's what we do with that and um i think obviously your your art is an important part of your process and there's a couple of things that um, have jumped out while you've been describing that. And um, one piece is just to pick up on the last thing. My art is the process in a large way in terms of um, what mattered to me was to take something very ugly and to transfigure it into something beautiful that could connect with other mm. people who have had some shade of experience like this because there will be some people who are able to identify directly with the context, but there will be others who see pieces of it reflected in their lives in different ways, right? So to me, after everything, I don't believe in justice. I believe that the most noble thing that you can do with your time is to help other people who are suffering mm. less pain and mm. some just feeling understood as part of that you know beautiful nice yeah um so that's one piece of it another very important piece and it's the reason that i don't mind about uh, talking about such personal things in public forums is when you have gone through trauma naming it is a way of taking it out of your own soul and putting it into the world so that it's not just able to eat away at you mm. And it's also a way of telling the truth of where you've been, which is a way of standing up against abuse. Nice. Yeah. hundred so, percent. I, yeah, I totally get that. Mm. 
And I've had so many experiences where people have come up to me after shows and said, like, you know, here is how I identify with this. You know, um, I've experienced something that feels like it is being called out in this music. And, you know, thank you for making me feel like I'm not alone. Yeah. Those are the moments where it's just like, this is all, all worth it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I definitely resonate with that. Otherwise, I really like that imagery of, you know, finding the core virtues and core elements that you are as a person mm -hmm. and seeing how to reflect those in the various roles that we play, because there's no way to fully escape that, you know, as human beings, we, there are so many stimuli out there that we need stereotypes almost to be able to make sense of our worlds. Mm -hmm. So we see people in different roles and we assume things about what that means about them. And I try my hardest personally to look beyond the role for other people. And I try my hardest to bring humanity to every role that I fill in my life and every interaction that I have with people. Mm -hmm. But there is always going to be as an empathetic person, particularly um, a bit of a struggle when it comes to other people's expectations. And I think that is a very, very important piece for people who are survivors of trauma. Um, it's a lot more difficult for people who have been through something like this or whatever it is in their own particular context to um, deal with people who are pushing past their boundaries, at least in my personal experience. Yeah. I feel like I need more respect for those things than I would have in the past. It would be easier to tolerate you know, incursions beyond it. And I've had to be very, very careful, not about putting up walls, but about um, being clear and not feeling guilty about mm -hmm. boundaries that are safe for me. Mm -hmm. I think we also need more time in self-care and that can mean different things for different people. But um, the most important thing is listening to yourself, loving yourself first and respecting yourself and not distracting yourself with other relationships. You know, I see that happen a lot as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think with the, the idea of boundaries and, and being rooted and connected to your body to being connected to this core self, it's being able to listen to that, which is deeply within you so that when somebody asks you for something or they invite you into something, you're consulting that, that within you, that you feel I can genuinely say yes to this because I've I've inquired all aspects of myself, my head, my heart, my gut, every aspect of me, everything that I value, and I can respond in a very straightforward fashion in a very clear way with what I feel comfortable to do. Um, and when it's a no, the no can be a loving act. You know, the no, the setting up of the boundary to let people know what doesn't fit is is a way to be caring to be honest and and actually truly um to allow for uh whether it's a genuine connection or uh, a disconnection of something that isn't healthy for either person um the the no and then this is something that i've you know found really useful to think of no's and those boundaries as a loving act you know whether it's between within that relationship or in the in the environment or the context itself um that when we're clear and when we're honest that's a that's a powerful force for for the good and say right i agree with you and the challenging part of it is that a person who is being faced with a boundary with you for the first time particularly if there's a long-lasting relationship there yeah um that is it's going to be perceived by them as something being taken away Mm -hmm. And I don't think everyone is necessarily at the same point in their journey in terms of self-awareness. And some people may not be able to um, ever get to the same place as one another. Yeah. So um, you have to really try to stand firm in that kind and loving no, even if a person reacts in a negative way to it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if um, this is something you use in your practice, but it's been immensely helpful for me in um, identifying toxic or codependent relationships that need to be shifted out of like a core relationship 
space in my life mm-hmm. to not fall into the trap of jade, justifying, arguing, defending, or explaining. Because when there's someone who has not got your best interest in mind, or who is not um, respecting a boundary that you're setting, all that that does is give more opportunity for you to be invalidated. Right. So yeah. I'll know, and that being the entire answer is sometimes the safest thing that you can do for yourself and for them. Yeah. And I think where um, toxic and abusive kind of relationships, they, they stem from one of the earlier things that you started to talk about is the seeking of validation from outside of yourself, because that's what feeds codependence. It's like the idea that I'm not okay unless we're together. That sort of fun foundational belief, uh, which is sometimes hard to get to because you can have this illusion that yes, we're autonomous and we're, you know, we're our own people. But I think when it's, it gets into this emotional, this addictive quality of, of being this, these great highs and lows, that's when you have an attachment that is based in this um, extreme external validation that I think we're all vulnerable to. As you said, you know, we're, we're primed in it over, you know, many, many years of public education to look to the teacher, to get the grades, to make our parents happy. But just there's a ton of conditioning towards that. And I think the idea of coming to a place of loving yourself is, is it's not even useful i think to think of it as a verb like you need to love yourself because i think then it becomes this other task that you have to perform well at i think it's it's really knowing your essence and your value as a as a human being um and connecting to that outside of your performance in these roles that we're talking about um that's difficult to do but i think that's a lot of what i try to to do with when I'm talking with people in a therapeutic context, which is to continuously point back to them that they already have it, that the thing that they're seeking out there already exists as a living force within them. And that their task is to, in in a similar way of what you're describing, is to share that as truth, as it, it is just that. It is like, this is my experience, this is my truth, how I've lived through it. And my worth isn't contingent on the response to that. It's just there. Yeah. Right. That's absolutely it. You know, um, you can't be worried about how you will be received. You just have to be as authentic and true as you can be, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, one of the really big challenges, um, just in general in self-improvement as a person, which is the voyage that we're really on forever because we're always becoming, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's never static. Um, <clears throat> is letting go of the external need for validation and being comfortable with who you are. And I feel like you have to complete the first process to some extent to be able to really get to know how to start the second process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At that point, you'll begin to attract the right people into your life. Nice. Can I ask you specifically, you know, as a performer, how do you prepare yourself for performances and deal with that ego mind that is, you know, tempted to, to be concerned about that external, like how, is there a, is there something that you have to do before shows to prepare yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, or it's not really something that you have to think about? Because I see you as very present and like, because of the kind of music that you share, it is very authentic. So I see that in the performance and I wonder if there's things you have to do to, to prepare yourself, to express yourself in that way. Well, the thing that I do before every performance is I ensure that I have enough time with my guitar in the days and weeks leading up that the songs feel like they're right under the surface, right? So like there's the performance element where I want the way that I'm able to represent the music that I'm playing, like the originals or the covers that I do, the best way possible from a musicianship standpoint, um, vocally as well. But then in terms of like the emotional preparedness, the approach that I've always had with this project has been, I'm going to be as honest as possible and to tell these stories through this music in the best way that I'm capable of with that practice 
and then I just have to trust that it will connect with people and that's been working, you know? Mm. Um, I certainly have not created anything with a view to what I think people will like. It has all just been, you know, what music do I want to make? What appeals to me? What sounds beautiful? What would I listen to myself? Mm-hmm. And then how do I tell these stories that I now have? And that kind of links us back to what I was saying earlier when we were talking. I now, after having lived through a lot of difficult circumstances in my life and learning so much about human nature between those interpersonal experiences, between what I saw in my practice in law and other experiences in life, um, I finally now have something that I think is really worth sharing So I look back over all of that and I still see some um, meaning in having gone through it because it got me to where I am now. Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid anymore. I used to be very shy and I would just play that role to hide Mm -hmm. the shyness, that's gone. And I just trust that what I've experienced is going to be specific enough to me to be my story, but um, relatable enough to the human experience that people will connect with it and that seems to be working yeah no definitely that i think as a as one of your listeners i definitely feel that your sort of deep dive into your your individual um experience has created and you've connected to these archetypes or these universal themes that i think resonate with people so thank you for creating your art well, thank you for connecting with it. You know, this is the connection that you had with it is exactly the kind of thing that makes this all worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Okay. Heather, is there anything else that you maybe want to share about yourself, about your, your process or your experience um, at this point? Um, if I could just kind of summarize just a few like last thoughts to leave people with. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be weak, you know, (laughs) when the right people are in your life, they're not going to make you pay for those moments. Mm. Can't be strong all the time. And I think that part of the reason that I went through really like the difficult times that I went through was because I was so proud and so afraid of showing weakness that I allowed myself to internalize everything. And then in the context of the abusive relationship I was in, when that person became my major source of external validation, um, it became a lot more difficult to leave because I didn't really have that network. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was wondering about in terms of being able to extricate yourself from such a relationship I imagine like you need a ton of support people that you do trust that have your best interests at heart that really know you to be that kind of reminder of you deserve better you're worth more than this um, to help you let it go the thing that I wanted to comment on that you were saying with how you prepare for performances is this theme of trust of you know doing your work and then being intentional about okay now I just have to trust and trust seems sounds like a passive thing and it really on some level it is but it's also a tremendously active thing to do um and and i think to your point about not being afraid to show weakness um to show that vulnerability there's a tremendous strength in that you know i work with a lot of men who have suppressed their emotions because that's what they've been trained to do culturally within their family and they often say, you know, I don't share my emotions because I'm afraid of appearing weak. And then when they come through the other side of it, it's like true strength is being able to have the courage to express it honestly and to allow it to move through your body, to share it with the people that you love. And then in receiving help and support, I mean, that's, that's tremendous strength. And uh, so I think that's kind of a full circle of of what it means to express and to be honest about your pain or your weakness or your human frailty. That's exactly true, right? And I mean, in the context of performance, um, part of the reason that I'm able to just let go and trust is because I don't have any expectation 
that I'll be able to connect with every single person. Mm-hmm. You know, frankly, I don't, you know, it, it's, um, it's not my expectation or goal that everyone will love it. People who don't connect with it, it's not for them, you know? Yeah, yeah. But the people who it does connect with, they connect on such a deep level that it's almost like we become friends, you know, mm-hmm. which is just an unbelievable and amazing thing to be able to do through music. Mm-hmm. It's like you get to know each other's soul because you know that you, that, that same thing resonates. Um, when it comes to individual people, um, being honest about their truth and their emotions it's very key to ensure that you have people that are safe, that you, that you really trust to open up in that way too. Right. And if someone doesn't make you feel safe in that way, that's not a safe person. And that's where the boundary goes. Yeah. 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 I think that's a good um, sort of segue. And I would want to touch upon the themes that you're talking about of how to know when you're safe, how to set up boundaries, um, how to trust your, your deepest intuition um, about things because that that inner wisdom you know we it's easy to override it um but there's some there's a kind of calculation that your body makes that's way more intelligent than our cognitive minds so isn't there that saying um when you're wearing rose colored glasses all the red flags look like white flags (laughs) i like that i've not heard that before that's good. That's good. Yeah. Okay, Heather, why don't we um, wrap it up for now? I'm sure it would be great to touch base with you again as you continue to progress on your journey. But I wish you all the best. I think you're an incredible artist and an incredible human being. Um, I think your story and your work is so inspiring. And um, I thank you for being you. Thank you so much, Tim. I'm really glad we did this. This was a lot of fun. 